0: Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. He's really snarky.
1: I've seen him quoted a lot. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that advice.
0: Honestly, he's 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 really good. He pulls no punches at all. I'm surprised. I'm surprised Macy's in particular doesn't have his (laughs) photograph posted everywhere. Do not let this man in the store. I mean, because he he finds like the worst displays, and then we'll post these little snarky things. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. It has been a remarkably busy week in fashion, hasn't it? Balenciaga is in the thick of a self-created crisis over ad images that suggested child sex abuse of all things. Ralph Simmons is shutting down his label after a remarkable 27-year run. Alessandra McKaylee is leaving Gucci. COP27 wrapped up in Egypt with an agreement for global leaders to create a fund for loss and damage to support countries most impacted by climate change. Black Friday has come and gone, and apparently has gone international. H&M released an ambitious plan to decarbonize its supply, and Vestiaire Collective banned fast fashion from their platform. Look, Bumble
1: knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new
2: Bumble now.
0: Phew, we've got a lot to cover today, so let's get right to it. Rachel Kibbe of Circular Services Group is in New York. Rachel, how's it going? It's going great, Christina. How are you? I'm good. I see we're both in our vests. I know, but you have more reason. I'm in Los Angeles with a vest on, which is... Is it a little cool there? Well, I mean, yeah, for us. No, it's cool. I need need it. I got this from Warren Wear Trove. Oh, Patagonia. Yeah, a little resale. You're styling, styling, styling. And the CEO of Thrilling, Sheila Kim Parker, is taking a week off. We miss you, Sheila. But lucky for us, our executive producer, Scott Clavenna, is joining us from Arlington, Massachusetts. Welcome, Scott. Hey.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm no Sheila, but I am uh, I'll have to do.
0: And you're in the basement, right? <laughs> and I'm in the basement. Like Shilla, right? So you look just like her. That. That's the qualification <laughs> that. for the job. <laughs> okay. I think that we have to talk about Balenciaga. I spent the whole day yesterday writing a a piece for Vogue Business and a bunch of other Vogue titles about the situation. Right now, if you type three words, Balenciaga child porn, into Google, you will get – 2.6 million hits, give or take. That is not good, and they have only themselves to blame for an ad campaign that posed toddlers with bondage-themed plushy bear handbags and booze glasses. It was like these kids had walked in on the tail end of a sex-fueled all-nighter. And these, by the way, kids were really like preschool-aged kids. For the time being, the CEO, Cedric Charbi, and the designer, Demnick Vesalia have managed to avoid taking direct responsibility for this blunder, which is a real mess. The brand issued an apology using the royal we, um, and they have filed a $25 million lawsuit. Oddly, they have two scandals going on. First, there was a plushie bear um, shoot, and then they issued the same week a separate campaign that included... Some uh, strange details in the props. One was a copy of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that involved child pornography. And the other was a a book of paintings by an author who paints figurative paintings a lot sometimes of very young toddler age children that are naked and playing with severed hands and blood and things like that. They're creepy. So, um, you know, the world exploded. Have you guys? Have you guys been following this this week? <laughs> how could you? Like, yeah,
2: absolutely. How, how could you not?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just one look. Like, I could hardly like just one look at the pictures. It was like, who? Who did this? Who did this? Like, also, I mean, there's just like so much to impact here. Here, like, mainly, like Balenciaga's response. So. What's wrong with them? I mean, like, how, okay. What so, would you like
0: to have heard from them?
1: Well, I guess, like, their very reaction implies how out of touch they are, which is part of the problem with this shoot itself, you know, and how mm-hmm. it happened. Like, there's some disconnection in this company that, like, is profoundly wrong, at bordering on evil. And I read their statements, and they, like, got the first half right, where they took some responsibility. Right. Right. Or full responsibility for part of the photo shoot, which was the teddy bears in BDSM, which were being held by children. Like, how something like that is, like, greenlit on a set that has massive amounts of people and goes through massive amounts of sort of quality control protocol, which I I know it does in the creative industry.
0: I, I don't know how no one stopped that. Well, you do. You do know how someone stopped that because somebody higher than them had already greenlit it and nobody wanted to speak up. I mean, that's the way these things happen, right? Yeah. And the person who greenlit it has not taken responsibility. It's this royal we. Balenciaga knows that Balenciaga is responsible. Well, Balenciaga, that's a bunch of human decision makers that planned this, executed it, put it in post production, and posted it on their website.
1: And probably one or two in particular who were not getting their names. And instead, they're blaming the second half of the problem, and the fact that they divided the problem into two, which is basically like children holding teddy bears are bad. We'll take responsibility for that. But then we're going to level a $25 million lawsuit against a contractor. Yeah, a set designer,
0: a freelance set designer.
1: A freelance set designer, or a, I thought it was a photographer.
0: No, they, compl- they the photographer issue, that was, there was an Italian fashion photographer who shot the first campaign with the, te- the BDSM teddy bears. And they're not suing him,
1: so he preemptively put out a statement. I saw that statement. he said, this is this is not my
0: fault. I was right. just told to do this." Right. The photographer doesn't have, yeah, his creative just his creative input is to like, light the show and click the camera, which is true. But the, so no, they're, they''re they're suing the set designer and the production company that hired him. That they they hired the production company, and the production company hired Nicholas um, Desjardins, who's the the set designer, and they're suing him for twenty five million dollars because of those two props that were, uh, actually, essentially one prop. They're 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 suing him over the one that is the Supreme Court document that refers to pornography, child pornography.
1: And let's just say it was like his decision, his fault, or that that agency's fault. They approved it. It's on their watch. It was paid for by them. It was greenlit by them someone that they're not naming and they're saying look over here we're gonna we're gonna sue someone for 25 million dollars and try to distract from our culpability yeah. which actually makes them look worse. And yes. this is also we're not talking about this is followed by just really weeks ago they had Kanye open their show. I mean and we're not even talking about that like something is like wrong there.
0: I think one reason we're not talking about the Kanye thing is that very quickly, when the Kanye thing blew up, they, did, they just severed that relationship and said they I were severing care. it. So they, well, you know, I'm, I'm not saying what they did was okay. They yeah. responded to that unequivocally. More appropriately. I see what you're saying.
1: Right. You, like you can't punish them twice for that. Yeah. Okay. I, get, I, get, I guess, but I guess what I'm saying is it's a pattern. Mm-hmm. and i think that a lot of times especially in fashion or maybe all industries but especially fashion we don't acknowledge these patterns and then they become huge problems including sustainability and way down the line we're like oh shit, this is like a big problem yeah how and it's like because we've been making that same problem over and, over and over and over and over and over and like not taking responsibility as an industry until it becomes larger than life i guess i'm more frustrated than anything because it's like this has been happening for years in the fashion industry you you mentioned some really interesting you, this is like not new that I'd love to hear your perspective on how this could happen and other points in history when similar things have happened, Christina because you've seen you've seen this for a long time.
0: yeah, well, I mean, I think that we've two kind of two kinds of transgressions that fashion companies. Get hit with a lot. One is the sort of I think it stems from a lack of diversity in rooms. that, You know, um, Prada doing the, the the monkey figurines, and I mean we've we've had series of, often from. European brands that aren't as sensitive to racial issues that are big deals in the United States. You know, so they do diversity training and they've gotten a little bit better about that kind of thing. And then we have the other issue, which is um, fashion does a lot of sexual provocation. They want to be provocative. And a lot of times they're sort of expressing their own sexual interests as they're creating these campaigns, as they're casting them. That gets really, I mean, it's been a Misogyny has been a huge problem for a lot of years. You know, kind of prime example of that is Dolce & Gabbana. Um, it was became dubbed as the gang rape ad, where they had a model lying on the, I think it was the deck of a, a ship, and there, with these sort of group of men looming over her, looking like they were about to rape her. Maybe that's a lack of diversity problem, also. I mean, you have to question. When I looked at the photographs of the Bonziaga campaign and saw the first one I saw was a little girl standing on the couch looking very innocent, sort of somberly at the camera, surrounded by all this paraphernalia. I just thought, where where was her mom? Yeah. Like who what parent would allow their child to be posed that way? Where were there no parents in the room? Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't let somebody else's child be posed that yeah. way if I were in that room. So you you Me neither. But then we have power hierarchies where people particularly in fashion they're all freelancers they don't want to get fired they want to get hired again
1: yeah and you've seen it play out with models and you know there was a huge wave of uh photographers getting outed for you know Terry Richardson right. I mean for these patterns and there weren't like a few instances and then these people got caught it was patterns and recorded mm-hmm. publicly recorded instances of abuse that the industry apologizes for, it, does again, apologizes for, it, does again, apologizes for, it, does again. And then it's a huge problem, and then finally something's done about it.
0: Somebody thought it was titillating and funny. I mean, I mean, and literally, that's the job of a creative director. The creative director of Balenciaga is Demna Gafsalia. He likes to go by Demna these days. Um, his name is not mentioned anywhere. He is such a god in fashion that nobody is talking about the fact that the creative director's job is to create the ad campaigns. Okay, Literally. so you think he's the one that they're not mentioning. Well, the CEO has got some responsibility too, right? I you know, I, presumably he was aware of the ad campaign. It's hard for me to imagine that the creative director and the CEO of Balenciaga did not, you know, issued a create an ad campaign that they hadn't seen.
1: Diet Prada just posted Kim Kardashian's response because she's very tied up with them and and I imagine in contract with them and paid by them, and and wears a lot of their clothes. And her response, I have to say, I read it and it was very well written. I don't know if it she was. wrote it. It was well written, and I thought I was like, okay. But people, I mean, go on diet product, not enough. People are just like, she just wants to wear their stuff.
0: Well, she did <laughs> cut know? ties. She said she's. really She did not
1: cut ties. She did not cut ties, and that's but that's kind of not how that family rolls.
0: Like they put number one first. So she posted that she'd waited until she could talk to the brand and find out what happened and and if they truly regretted it. Um, And she said they did, and she felt confident that they would not do something like this again. And then Twitter blew up, social media blew up with criticisms of her saying that's not far enough. So she waited 50 minutes, and that's when she posted the I'm reevaluating my relationship with Mm, mm Balenciaga post, which some people still don't think so. But, you know, what What a great example of, you know, when a brand f up like this, look at all the people that get sucked into it. You know, the, the CEO and the decision makers are avoiding the limelight in all of this. And still, it's coming out to the contractors and influencers.
1: That's a really good point, actually, because we talk a lot about how brands have a responsibility for which influencers they get involved with and are they vetting them enough. But are influencers vetting brands enough?
2: Oh, that's big. That is big. <laughs> It's that is in, big in crypto now because of the uh, <laughs> the people shilling for um, FTX are now named in lawsuits yeah. as, you know, they should have done the diligence on FTX, not the other way around. So, which I think is asking a lot yeah. of you know, Tom Brady to figure out if FTX is a Ponzi scheme or not. You I don't do, know if anyone stuck, can meet that they? standard. Oh, but, gosh. Yeah.
1: That's a whole other show, actually. I would love to talk more about that. But My
0: husband has been in the thick of that because he, you know, he's an editor for Coindesk and they broke that first story that – that pulled everything down. So it's been really an intense few weeks. Okay, we have we have to address this, Scott. I have a feeling that you will have strong feelings about Raph Simmons closing Raph Simmons his brand of twenty seven years.
2: I, you know, I, I do. I think he's amazing. Uh, actually, yeah. he's he, his clothes are. I went back and reviewed. A bunch of his collections, and I was like, you know what? I have to admit, he's actually significantly cooler than John Barbados, Even it was more daring, it was more mm-hmm. playful. I think Varvatos is just very kind of serious, dark, edgy, cool. Where Raph is just very playful and fun, and but still part of the whole '90s thing. Then I went and said, "Oh my god, do I own I any?" Mean, and uh, I think um, either it was too expensive or I missed it at times or what have you. And Varvatos became more accessible over time. So it was just easier to kind of latch onto that and, you know, keep with him. But uh, I don't think I have anything in from Raph in the closet. When Now I, I feel like I should.
0: I have no insight into, you know, particular insight into why he's closing his brand. I have some suspicions. I think one thing is he's been doing really good work at Prada and yeah de- he has a job sort of co-designer he de- yeah and he's always had another job he's always had another job the fact that designers are expected to
1: have all these jobs <laughs> like when well, you start reading about what they're actually doing it feels very spread thin to have your own eponymous label and then also be co- what is he co-creative director of prada <laughs> Like, yeah. And before that, he was
0: he was creative director of Calvin Klein and before that of Dior and before of that of Jill Sander. He's been doing, I mean, Raph has always been working like that, but those big jobs understand they're not, like, he's not sketching.
1: Yeah. I know right? that. Right. He's not it's making still...
0: samples and they're very well-paid jobs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are big salaries. So, but anyway, so he is busy with Prada and, and at some point Mewch is going to retire. My first thought was, oh, I wonder if this is a signal that next season Mutual retires and turns all of Prada over to him or, you know, in some ways taking a bigger role there. But also, I mean, I will say I had a conversation with him. It wasn't an interview. We were just talking uh, three or four years ago. And he was, uh, he told me that he was thinking about trying something new, that he wanted to, he was thinking about the Bauhaus and the way Bauhaus made art that was also useful. And he said that he really wanted to become an artist, not just a fashion designer. And I, at the time, I said, well, what's holding you back? And he goes, well, fear, of course. So maybe he's, you know, going to take the opportunity. He's a grown up now. Gucci has a seat open. (laughs) Yes, they do. Which brings us on to, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Did anybody see Alessandro Michele being fired from Gucci?
1: I mean if you didn't (laughs) I did not I Definitely not my wheelhouse, but I was, you know, I'm embarrassed to say, but I should just say it. Like, I didn't really know who he was, which is like, I know jaw dropping, but I'm very back of house. I knew who Gucci was. I'm like a logistics, I'm not a luxury fashion person. And so I just started knowing who he was because of his star quality, because of him being in these pictures with, I mean, he knew how to, he was a star in his own right. And that's why. You know, he wasn't – I'm sure I'd read his name before many times in reading articles, but I didn't know what he looked like, and I wouldn't be able to identify him as a person and as as a persona until until recently. And what struck me most is how poetic he was. Like, he had it all. He had the visuals, and he could talk about the visuals and add to them through the way he spoke and wrote about them.
0: You know, this is actually a really good example of how absolutely brutal and vicious big fashion can be. So to go back a little history lesson, Tom Ford, you know, left Gucci, I, I've you know, in the early knots and, and, and under, you know, under a cloud of anger. Yeah. And they replaced him with Frida Giannini. The ba- brand became more under Frida. It was just boring. It was, you know, she wasn't, she didn't know how to sex it up like Tom did. They, they did fine clothes, but nobody was interested. And editors used to groan about having to go to the shows. And... Then they brought in a new uh, Marco Bizzari, the new CEO, and he fired Frida very quickly and like literally seven days before the men's show and promoted Alessandra McKaylee, who was her assistant, to do a men's show that he pulled together in seven days, which is crazy. And I was not at that one, but um, the following month he did the women's show and nobody knew who he was, literally – Nobody. They were like, who is this guy? What is he doing? And he did this show and it was the weirdest. I mean, people were just sitting there and suddenly it went from being this sort of sexy, well-tailored trim stuff to like he had women's clothes on men and and men's clothes on women. And this was before all the gender bending. He started the gender bending. That show started the gender bending, right? It was weird proportions, almost clownish proportions. And they looked like stuff was pulled out of different eras. It was poetic. That's a really good word for it. And I remember sitting at that show and looking at everybody else and people were just shocked. And they they were quiet when it ended. They didn't know how to absorb it. And I saw Marco Bazzari stand up. He had this huge Cheshire cat grin on his face. He knew that they had done something. The next day, the entire fashion industry decided that they loved Gucci.
1: It was lightning in a bottle. It's one of those rare moments where... A C-suite makes a great creative decision and it leads them to think that they are a creative and will forevermore make great creative decisions. Like most industries, the people in the business functions, like in hospital, my dad's a doctor. He talks about this all the time. The administrators are always telling doctors how to do their jobs. And it's a problem. It's probably the reason we have a terrible medical system. And I would say it it may be the reason why our industry is so messed up.
0: Like we don't, value, loyalty in the fashion industry. Um, yeah, but what this but the, Gucci's a big brand and and sales are not going well. So that, why how long should they be loyal to Alessandro Michele?
1: I mean, I guess that's that's
0: fair. The stuff is not as cool at today as it was. I mean, he turned that company around. Their revenues were increasing quarterly like 35%. It was crazy for several years. But it's not happening anymore. They're part of caring. It's a publicly traded company. They've got responsibilities to shareholders. So his job is to increase revenues quarter by quarter by quarter. That's his job. Well, let's see if somebody else can do it. In our lifetimes I don't think we'll see a designer do with a brand what he did with that one. I think it's also,
1: you know, I was I don't know where I was reading this. It's on Anna Angelic. I hope I'm saying her name right. She's a great Substack. Um she writes a lot. She writes a lot about the metaverse, but in the context of marketing. And she's just, she's a a marketing genius and writes some really great things about marketing in fashion specifically. And she was writing about how the luxury space, the way she didn't say this exactly, but the upshot is that the luxury space has become more and more about novelty. And it just reminds me, is it turning into fast fashion? Because people are no longer looking at luxury brands in the same way that they used to, which is that they are very, very separate from and apart from the way fast fashion or contemporary sort of mid market brands operate, which is that they follow fashion. Uh, uh, it's that luxury houses are expected to churn out novelty all the time, more and more now. And it's to your point; it's for for shareholder value.
0: Yeah, and a lot of it's for marketing. You know, if you look at Dolce Gabbana's runways and ad campaigns, you see one thing. You go into the Dolce & Gabbana store, you see a lot of really spectacular tailoring. That's what they really sell, right? But the, they churn out all that novelty for the marketing angle. Although Gucci, you know, those marketing campaigns really sold the Gucci logo. The Gucci logo stuff went bonkers under that. We've had so much fun with high fashion. I almost hate to turn to... <laughs> COP27 to something actually womp, important womp. but this is like, <laughs> actually this is really important. We got to talk about COP27. What happened there? What didn't happen there? Scott, yeah. This is like this is a sweet
2: spot for you. What did you think? Yes. Uh it wasn't a very sweet spot, I guess, though, is yeah. the takeaway. It was meant to be the implementation cop. After Glasgow last year, there was a lot of very aggressive commitments, really admirable mm-hmm. pledges um, and commitments to lower emissions and address biodiversity, address vulnerable nations, all that. And So this was supposed to be, let's, you know, paper these up into like real implementation details and commitments and hold everyone to it. And that actually didn't really happen. I think like if you were... The notion that this was the implementation COP sort of at that level it failed, and in fact there were some disappointing things around how much influence petrostates and fossil fuel interests had held sway there. That even trying to use the word phase out of coal was changed to phase down, um, and that, that you know those words actually could carry a ton of meaning at, at COP. Yeah. And even just getting to phasing down coal uh, was met with a lot of resistance. But there was an ambition to actually switch that word to fossil fuels, to really implicate the entire fossil fuel industry and in committing to, uh, you know, countries committing to phase down their uh, use of and exploration and everything of, of fossil fuels. And that didn't happen. So that was disappointing and some other things they just punted to next year which you know is just the bureaucratic nature of this but i guess on the positive side everyone's talking about loss and damage and that is a a concept that's literally been at cop since 1991 and people have been talking about it and just what is loss and damage it's separate from it's called annex 1 but the the dominant you know developed nations of the world who are mostly responsible for the emissions that are causing climate change it's that's us um, that's us. <laughs> yes. China's in a gray area where they're not in Annex One, but they are the largest emitter. So they're they certainly shouldn't be the recipient of any aid, you know, for uh, climate change. So there was a debate around that at this COP around whether, you know, China is is part of the uh, the providers of loss and damage. But the idea with loss and damage isn't just in the past there was a commitment to provide a hundred billion a year in um financing made available to developing nations to invest in you know low carbon infrastructure and forest preservation and that kind of thing and the 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 large countries of the world did not keep up that commitment they haven't been able to they haven't provided the 100 billion a year even there but loss and damage is different in that it's literally a fund that you can submit claims to in effect saying that like our nation has suffered this loss and damage because of unavoidable climate change.
0: So like Pakistan could do that and say we're our, our, our half our nation is underwater right now because of
2: climate change. Originally it was it was proposed The language originally, way back when, it it felt more like sea level rise was the big thing. Island nations, low lying nations, that if if climate change um, floods them, you know, they wanted some way to recover economically from that. It's evolved to mean anything, just you know, damage from uh, unavoidable damage from climate change, which is a little hard to prove. Um, It's a little hard to figure out what the right way you measure compensation is. Um, but they made the progress. They actually did create at least the funding structure. And then next year at Dubai, they're going to, uh, they promised to add more language to that. So I think everybody came away from that, like at least they did it because they've been talking about it forever. And so it, it at least the mechanism and the, the fund exists now. And Is that uh, the t-
0: 230 million?
2: Yeah. there Some countries had already made sort of symbolic pledges to it, but the amount that that could need is far more than that, right? If you look at like compensating an island for going underwater, it's going to be a really high number.
1: I looked up how much it took to rebuild New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina alone, and it mm. took $186.3 billion.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, exactly
1: a $230 million fund that yeah, we're yeah, kind no. of squabbling over but, yeah. seems like
2: it's, it's, Ideally, the, yeah, the, the design is that it would be much bigger. And it's actually meant to be – it's not set. It's meant to just be variable in that that's an incentive for the large nations of the world to get really aggressive about climate mitigation because this is their economic exposure is all the claims from loss and damage. That's, that's how it's supposed to work if it works well and if it's enforced and, you know, everyone participates.
0: I mean, I, the Guardian, I think it was the Guardian, the BBC reported that one of the delegates for, I think it was Mauritius, like one of the island, little island, little teeny island nations, was um, actually the CEO of BP, British Petroleum. They sent him as a delegate yes. for yeah, their little island. Oh, oh my Lord. Okay. So <laughs> say no more. Okay. So a big <laughs> for COP27. did not Didn't get much done. Let's talk about... To, what yesterday was Cyber Monday, three days before that was Black Friday. The retail season seems to be. I watched for the last month people wringing their hands about recession, and then on Black Friday, we all watched and read about throngs of people in malls not shopping for apparel, apparently, shopping more yeah, for
2: a lot of electronics. Um,
0: and electronics. So it's the holiday season. We have to talk about the retail. It's the biggest, most important quarter for retailers um, the holiday season is. Um, They look to it for their biggest profits. They come into November with a lot of anxiety, particularly this November, because everybody was wondering whether we're going into a recession or not. We are here to talk about sustainable fashion, but let's take a step back first and survey this landscape. To put it mildly, it's confusing, and brands have lots to contend with as they look across the market. There's high inflation. There's worries about the recession. There is apparently a ton of inventory left over to move because everybody overproduced last year. Um, coming out of the pandemic, uh, but there's strong consumer enthusiasm to get back out there and shop in person after all these years of COVID. Black Friday came in pretty strong, thanks to good weather and COVID fears on the back burner. Online sales were up. Apparently, Sephora uh, stores were were thronged. Neil Saunders, the Managing Director of Global Data Retail, told me, that apparel stores in Nordstrom were pretty empty when he did his store checks on Friday, but that Bath and & Body and Sephora were queued up the malls. By the way, if you guys, anybody who's on Twitter, and if you're interested in retail at all, follow Neil Saunders. He is absolutely hilarious. He goes out every Saturday and goes to malls. He picks on Macy's all the time, and he posts photographs of what he discovers in these stores with very funny captions about them. It's a, that He's really snarky. Um, anyway, What caught our attention here is the move to resale as a holiday shopping destination, and how much of that move is driven by Gen Z. Here are three moves in the re-commerce market that stood out. ThreadUp, in collaboration with Zero Waste Daniel and Fran Drescher, launched an upcycled series of items on their site called the Full Circle Collection, made from things that were previously unable to sell – Poshmark branded the Sunday after Black Friday Secondhand Sunday with a series of promotions to get people thinking about giving secondhand items as gifts this season. And Recurate, which works with brands to build their resale channels, is helping them incorporate resale into the shopping experience this season with a hope that for some consumers, this is a way into luxury. So much of this hinges on Gen Z, a group that is as much known for its passion for fast fashion, influencers, and haul videos as its love for thrifting and sustainable fashion. I'm just curious, do you think this is meaningful? You know,
1: I've been thinking about this a lot because none of us have the answers about sort of why Gen Z doesn't seem to or seems to equally love fast fashion as much as they love resale. And it sort of blows our minds. But I think basically Gen Z, like a lot of us, is looking for deals. And until we can make resale more accessible, and it's not yet, it's nascent. I actually had a bunch of things that I wanted to get over Black Friday because I wanted the deals and I was looking for used versions. And um, it takes quite a bit more work and a, quite a bit more time. Um, you have to put in the legwork. Um, the resale sites, and I love that what ThreadUp and Recurate and Poshmark are doing, trying to elevate resale during these prime shopping holidays to make it more accessible for people. But there needs to be more of that. And resale needs to be side by side with new. And it's not, we're not there yet. I think it's a bit of a lark, if that's the word, that we're not in a recession. I think people are shopping Black Friday because they are looking for deals because they don't have a lot of money. And a lot of times these sales, sales like this really do only come once a year. And they're big because there's a glut of inventory. Uh, And so it was funny, Jeff Bezos actually said like, beware, this shopping is is not because people have money, it's because they don't. And that People should really tighten their belts and not make a lot of huge purchases.
2: The thing I saw that I found fascinating that reveals some of this is um that the divide between rich and poor is is real in the America, as we've witnessed. And it's actually plays out in fashion really consistently that and currently that luxury brands are doing really well because rich right. people stayed rich. As you go Down the economic ladder and and down the the retail one, the challenge there is that inflation is really impacting lower-income consumers. So they're really looking for deals. And in the middle, I think, there's economic anxiety and and a sense, I think, that if there are any deals now for this holiday before things get really bad next year, because there are a lot of warnings of an actual, like, real mathematical mega-recession next year, that there's just enough anxiety that you really looking for deals now, and I guess it's it sort of broken that link between retail at the luxury level and, and at the lower level now. The luxury brands are just going to be fine through this. In
0: 2008 and 2009, horrible financial crisis swept the world. Hermes did great. Louis mm. they had They did great. Because if you're Jeff Bezos and you just lost 30% of your billions, you still have many more billions, right?
2: The the resale things that we were just talking about, thread up and Poshmark and Recurate, like, and whether it has an impact or not, because I do think if you look at the numbers, we have such an overproduction and overconsumption problem that just a little bit of resale at the edges is probably not making an actual difference. But it does seem like it's in the consciousness more. And I was wondering, like, do... Does it make sense for ThredUp or Poshmark or anything to open stores and malls? Like, really have resale be on the same aisle, like in the same venue as original? Like, should, should resale just be thought of as a way you buy clothes now?
0: Oh, I certainly hope it will be. I mean, Real Real has opened stores, they're doing well for them. You know, Sheila said one time something that was a comment that really stuck with me when she said that Goodwill should own the the online retail, resale space. Mm. And it, it struck me like, my God, yeah, that's everybody's go-to, right? And I know they are doing online now. They're actually, they got me on their mailing list somehow. So I've been sort of curious about it.
1: I mean, I think if we have any hope for the future in terms of climate change, resale will be, like I said, side by side with new product and overwhelmingly only resale will be available and less new product. And so I think that we are still, it's almost like we're in the beta version of resale or like how we couldn't imagine all the things that the internet could offer us. I think that's the same with resale. And we're thinking of it as two separate shopping experiences. And by default, can't be. Like if if we were to have like any hope, it needs to be, and it will be, I believe, the norm. And that's why I think that investors getting cold feet in in the resale market space is very short-sighted. And anything circular economy, frankly.
0: Well, making it more accessible. I I, mean, I don't know what the, the econo- stores are expensive to open, so yeah. brands are you know they get in, they get themselves in a lot of trouble by opening stores, and I suspect that the margins for thread up are pretty pretty razor thin.
1: Yeah, that's a larger conversation that has to do with policy and a lot of other sort of infrastructural support that could bolster uh, alternative shopping models to make them the norm. Um, And I would argue that we need um, it because it is an an inefficient system right now. It is not economically viable to open up stores in the resale space as it is for for new products. But that's a system problem in that fast fashion has been allowed to run rampant.
0: You know, actually, which brings us to Vestiaire. I actually like, I, I'm pretty sure I gave a whoop, a, an audible whoop when I saw the news that Vestiaire Collective is banning fast fashion brands from its marketplace Uh, starting Friday. The company said its latest decision came after a team of employees visited Cantamanto in Ghana. That's the the largest reuse and upcycling economy in the world. You've probably seen pictures of bulldozers with mountains of thrown away clothes that could have been there. Roughly 15 million garments passed through Cantamanto. Am I pronouncing that correctly, by the way? That's that's the way I've always said it. Now I'm saying it and wondering. I I hope I'm saying that right. Roughly 15 million garments pass through the Cantamanto market every week, according to Vestier Collective, with 40% of unbaled items leaving the market as pure waste.
1: So to put that in perspective, 15 million units or 15 million garments a week passing this mm-hmm. market, I, I believe that is a weekly as much as thread processes in a year. And they aren't the only place in the world that receives kind of this type and volume of the West's waste. And generally, it's not like all of the good wills. I think there's like a mistaken understanding that like all of the good wills and all of the resale places are just sending it over there. There's a whole supply chain. It's like they're sending it to the best buyer who sends it to the next best buyer who sends it to the next best buyer. And then the poorest places in the world who are going to buy this stuff for the, who can only afford to buy it for the cheapest, like Cantamanto, are getting the waste.
0: So in six months, are we going to be seeing a bunch of Yeezy stuff in Cantamanto?
1: Yeah. I, you're, you probably see it. They, they've got everything. I mean, it's like we should have like Liz Ricketts or someone from the OR Foundation is who Best Air Collective is working with. And I know is Liz and she does a lot of she has a nonprofit there where she works closely with that industry. And she was the one who was the recipient of Shein's 15 million, 15 million dollar investment in recycling there.
0: Should we be celebrating when resale sites ban fast fashion? I think it's complicated, right? Rachel Chernasky wrote, or no, it was um, somebody, the Vogue Business wrote about what happens to the clothing. If you can't, if you pull it, if, if Vestiaire won't sell it, where does it end up? Does that send it more quickly to the landfill? I
1: mean, I think we're asking the wrong question. Vestiaire doesn't really sell it it was it's like five percent of of their product. they're a luxury platform. I think that was sort of some of the criticism is that you know, they don't make money from this. It's probably a loss for them anyway to sell fast fashion unlike, a deep hop. But it's very complicated. It all goes back to an existential question that I asked in a previous episode when we had Jake, Jake Disraeli on from Treat, who was talking about his Shein mm-hmm. partnership. And that question right. is, what is resale's responsibility as it relates to fast fashion? And one could say that it is their responsibility, ethically, to give anything another life. And that's what he took as an approach as a business. And another person could say, as an environmental business... As a circular economy business, you should be taking a stand. And I think both answers are right, and it depends on your business model. A treat is a peer-to-peer platform, meaning, well, they do multiple things, but one of their primary functions is peer-to-peer, meaning like Poshmark or Depop, sellers or customers are selling to each other, which means unlike a Trove, who we had Andy Rubin on from Trove, they are physically intaking, handling, and inspecting this inventory, which is prohibitive because of the cost of fast fashion. So there's no easy answers.
0: (laughs) Well, I have to say that as a consumer, and I shop on vestiaire, I've bought like really good Nilly Loten stuff on on there um, for great prices. But I don't want to see when I'm shopping for stuff like that, particularly when I'm when on resale, I'm looking for stuff that's more expensive at retail than I'm likely to want to spend. And I don't want to see my feed cluttered up with a bunch of stuff from Sheehan. So when I saw what Vestiaire was doing, I thought, I should, we should explain it actually. So the way it's going to work is any brands that don't meet the requirements will be banned from the site, and the platform has already purged several ultra-fast fashion brands like Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, ASOS, and Shein. Um, those are the ones that were accounted for like 5% of the, what's on their inventory. They have not banned H&M and Zara, I think, and, and you know, other brands will be considered. I thought it's interesting when I read that about H&M and Zara. We'll talk more about some other things that H&M is doing right now, but we used to think of H&M and Zara as fast fashion. We still call them that, but their speed of delivery and their quality of manufacture is so much higher than the Sheehan's and the fast fashion brands that have come later. I almost don't see them in the same category.
1: I don't either. And I think the resale industry is having a bit of a a crisis in defining what fast fashion is. And that's why Vestiaire has said they're going to spend three years and they have certain categories that they're going to use to decide on how, like which brands they include. Like you said, they're keeping H&M and Zara.
2: I also think there's like a, it feels like it's a good brand decision if you think of Vestiaire as a brand, you know, from their perspective. It's a good decision from their part because if they're really interested in, like, their customer experience, that they're getting fines, that they're getting things they couldn't get elsewhere at those prices, that they are going to get it and like it, um, you know, if just sort of vestier brand loyalty, you really wouldn't want fast fashion on there because people are going to get it and be like, this stuff is crap. So that's like a, a resale question that, like, they don't even necessarily have to get too involved in other – I mean, there's some nice things that they can message around it. But, like, honestly, just as a resale platform, you'd want to stay away from that because you just want to be thought of as a quality destination. that people are going to come back to you because they trust everything they get has been – has passed through some filter that it's going to be good.
1: But it's right for them, but it might not be right for a up or a depop. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, like – I, like you said, you, you shop because you're looking for a deal on a, on a brand or a brand name, maybe not luxury, but something that's known. And I have friends who shop on ThreadUp who have a bunch of kids and don't know anything about brands and don't care. They're just looking for deals, period.
2: Oh, 100%. I think a vestiaire is where you go if you can't afford luxury new, but you want, to, you want something. So you noodle around there and find something. It's, it's great.
0: Are we ready for
1: hot buttons? Scott, what's your hot button? Go yeah. first.
2: Mine? Oh, I got a good one. Um, well, so I love Derek Guy. Do you know Twitter? Yes.
0: on Twitter? Workwear oh At Workwear. Nice. Yes. Oh,
2: he's so good. He's hilarious. And this morning I, I sat and read his thread on cashmere because it's timely because a lot of people are shopping for cashmere gifts or whatever. And Yeah. One, um, you—if you didn't know—this cashmere is goats, not sheep. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like they're Mongolian goats, and you don't shear them; you brush them. And when you process that into cashmere, into yarn, uh, and then make products from it. Uh, there's different lengths of the fibers that result in different uh, the durability of uh, and the feel of the of the final finished product. And so he went through that whole process. But his point was that responding to questions around why can I get a forty dollar cashmere sweater from one from Everlane, say, and a four hundred dollar cashmere sweater from a woolen brand, and what's the difference? Yeah. And who's, who's, is someone gouging me or am I actually paying for, for quality? And his, um, it was a long, complicated answer, which is what you run into when you start peeling any onion in the fashion industry. And the fascinating thing that I learned, assuming it's all true, is that because there are ways to make, well, cashmere's just sort of caught on as it got a little bit cheaper. Um, it got a
0: lot cheaper. Crazy cheaper.
2: But like more goats were uh, acquired um, to meet demand and prices came down. But at the same time, what happened then is it's um, a bit of a tragedy of the commons where the goats ate up all the grassland in Mongolia. And now the goats are literally starving. And some of the goat herders have to carry their weakest goats back to the barn or whatever on their motorcycles because they're just wobbling on shaky legs on just parched ground. And it's actually affecting the quality of the cashmere that comes off of that malnourished goat.
0: I read that thing too. He said, I think his numbers were that they went from roughly 5 million cashmere goats in Mongolia to 25 million. Yeah. In the last few years. That's a startling increase.
2: Right. Given how much they graze every day and what that can do to a of the land and so he had just very practical sensible I mean that's what he's known for is' just very sensible advice on what different cashmere you know uh, what it what its feel is what its durability is and you know his main point is kind of the point we always come back to you do need to pay mm-hmm. more for it because oh. you want to buy less of it and so you're paying more so you have something that's durable, you're not necessarily choosing a sustainable there aren't it wasn't clear that there was a sustainable herd of goats and an unsustainable you know
1: and if there were I wouldn't trust it necessarily yeah
2: it was more just like we're over consuming it we're over consuming it and like don't just buy 10 $40 cashmere sweaters buy one $400 one and hang on to it and take good Mm. care of it and um, um, and actually don't fall for it being super soft you know he had some things about the milling and How uh, you can sort of in the store, it feels really soft, but it actually pills, you know, more quickly. Just good, sensible advice and a little education about cashmere and a very cute picture of a goat.
0: That baby goat, yeah. (laughs) I have, you know, I have a a cashmere vest when I think about it. It's a black cashmere vest that I wear all the time that came to my husband. It belonged to his grandfather. That's how who died 20 years. I mean, how, I don't know when his grandfather bought that thing, but that thing has got to be at least 50 years old and it does not pill. It has no pills. So we don't, we don't have to accept pilling in our sweaters.
1: And I think that's the, I think that is sort of the difference and, and why it's very, I mean, for a lot of reasons, it's hard to measure something sustainability, but what higher end brands have is they have the ability to purchase more expensive fabrics. And in the end, that's really important. And that type of cashmere is probably not even on the market today, even in luxury probably fashion. Not. Right, probably true. But I bet but you can you can do your best to sort of invest in in more expensive.
2: And by resale. He was saying that there's plenty of good Scottish resale cashmere sweaters out there and just, you know, reduce demand for the, the virgin cashmere.
0: It's gonna be a rush on on Google searches for Scottish yeah. cashmere resale sweater, <laughs> which I will be doing as soon as we're done recording. So, Rachel, what's your hot button? My hot button's anticlimactic. Do you have a good one? I'm not a Twitter exodus person. I'm still on Twitter. But my feed is starting to suck. It has the trashiest, weirdest ads with companies that have like 100 followers. And you know, I don't even think they're real companies. I now have ads on my Twitter feed for people who just bought a blue Check Mark and are advertising for followers. So Twitter advertising must be incredibly cheap right now. That's all I'm saying. And as I'm watching the whole site get degraded, I, a couple of weeks ago, I started to think, well, where, where do I want to go? Because Twitter's an important part of my life. And so I went on mad Mastodon, and um, I've been active on Mastodon for a couple of weeks, and I'm enjoying that, but I can see that it's never going to have that town square thing that I liked, where, where Twitter was my my news feed, it was where I could look for reliable information coming from my local government, for information about forest fires when I was worried about my family's ranch, you know, all this, like, uh, it was just a big Part of my information gathering. And um, so I got on the list for Post, and I've been on Post. Do you guys know about Post? Mm-mm. It's um was supposed to be launched about a year from now by Noam Bardin, who's the he was the CEO of Waze one of the creators of Waze. And so, and he has this idea that um, we could have a social media site that would incorporate micropayments so that publishers could, you know, Reuters is, is currently experimenting with this, but they're hoping to get a lot of newspapers and news publishers on, and you can pay like one cent to read an article, which is great for people who want, you know, I, I about three times a year, I want to read something in the Miami Herald. And you know, I'm not going to subscribe to the Miami Herald. But anyway, so there's this aspect of being able to, you know, get a lot of news, and I'm a news junkie, or other publications um that way, but it's also very much like Twitter with a huge, huge focus on um being civil, on civility. And it's in beta now, it's very beta. I mean every day they're you know, today I open my post up and I can suddenly look at my notifications, which were really hard to find before. So every day it's sort of a new kind of place. But I think it's working and I think it's gonna be really promising. Um,
1: I have to say, Christine, I love how you're sort of the guinea pig for alternatives to Twitter for me. I'm, I'm sitting oh. back and I'm letting you test drive these alternatives and I'll join the one you you say is your sort of next Twitter.
0: Well, actually, so I actually kind of think it's going to be a mixture of Mastodon and Post. I mean, there's more people on Mastodon than Post right now, but Post has got it, people are coming on every day, and and frankly, most of my major follows, people I follow on Twitter, have come over. There, there are some that haven't. Um, I do keep trying to get at Die Worker over there on Post, but I have a lot of faith in Bardown to build this. If he built Ways, you know, which was also a social network, right? It was people sharing where they were for the collective good of being able to find a shorter, faster way to get where you're going. So he knows how these things work. The weird thing is, is that they came out of the gate really quickly because of what's happening at Twitter. And so they're, I mean, it's kind of hilarious watching them scramble to build the site while also letting people in. And then they have incidents like, I mean, this is how strong the focus on civility is. He Barden did a whole post on the fact that a person had... Gotten really hostile in comments on somebody else's post, and it had gotten ugly. The posts were taken down, the person was counsel- counseled, they apologized, and Gnome wanted everybody to know that this kind of behavior was not acceptable. Could you imagine that happening on Twitter? Like, Jack- Well, the opposite is happening <laughs> opposite. now. So it's <laughs> like the, the way the opposite. Office even-
1: yeah. Rachel. So my hot button is. Sort of a story, sort of existential crisis over um, shipping. <laughs> um, so the, the back story is I sent my sister, I went to my local, I, I live in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, and there's a local UPS store. I went there one day and the cashier seemed really frazzled and it seemed a little, it seemed really sort of out of order internally. The, the store itself, it's tiny. It's like literally like a, it's not even the size of a bodega. It's very small, and this is for a, a neighborhood that's whose population has exploded. Um, it's gentrified. It's 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 a hot sort of place to be. Um, it's really the only place mm-hmm. you can near me, especially if you don't have a car to take your packages. And the cashier was very frazzled, and he, I hadn't taped up my package, and he grabs it from me and says, "It's not taped." And I said, I, "I'm very sorry. Would you mind taping this?" And he's like, "Okay." And he takes out this tape, this, this roll of tape. And he, he just puts tape all over the whole, the entire package. Like he, it, it turns into like a ball. This was a soft package. Like there was oh. clothes in there for <laughs> oh, my God. sister. Um, and it just looks oh. like a, a ball. And I was like, this looks really bad. It just like really, I'm sending my sister this package and it's going to look like, you know, I just sent her this ball of sh- basically. Um, and I, and then I thought, this is kind of funny. I'm going to wait and see if she says anything to me. Because she would. I'm not going to warn her. I'm just going to wait till she says something. And she texts me a few days later and is like, uh, Rachel, did you send me this package? And I'm like, I, I sent you a package. And she sends me a picture. And not only it was it literally like this wadded up ball, it had her name, like, we have the same last name and the last name was entirely misspelled. The first name was entirely misspelled. My name was misspelled. And she was just like, I, <laughs> she was just like, I, I thought maybe you were like joking around. I was like, no, that, that like store is, it turned into this whole conversation. I was like, that store is like not doing well. And I, I was going to warn you, but then I wanted you to have the full experience yourself. So we sort of talked about that store. So months later, fast forward this weekend, I go back to that store because I need a new passport photo and I walk in, you can hardly walk in the door. I mean, the packages from the holidays are just like a fire hazard, like lining in the walls. I mean, and it's a different cashier this time, equally frazzled. And I ask, hey, can I get a passport photo taken here? And he's like, oh no, that, (laughs) the machine's broken. And I'm just thinking, okay, so you've got this neighborhood that's exploded in population, Um, a company that probably can't afford a a new lease needs a store that's probably five times the size that this store is. It's only going to get worse because of Amazon. What are we going to do in the future about logistics in this country? Because I know like the United States Postal Service is like having lots of problems. And uh, apparently UPS is also having problems. I I just don't, we're only going to shop
0: online more and more, I believe. You need Goodman Brothers. That's just a shame for your neighborhood. What's to not Goodman have. Brothers? I don't, I don't even know, I know don't... what that is. They're all over LA. I don't know. They're they're awesome. I can even, I don't even go to the post office anymore. I, I mailed my taxes for checks from Goodman Brothers now. They do everything and you go in and they, they keep you in their computer. You go in there and you're like, I want to mail this. And they're like, okay, well, the cheapest way is to use UPS or FedEx or whatever it is for whatever you want. They take it. We had, we, we had to FedEx. My daughter forgot her wallet when she flew back to college after Thanksgiving. And we went to FedEx it to her. And then my husband realized that he didn't check the box that somebody would have to sign for. For it. And so he called them and said, I didn't check this box. Can you, can, can we still do that? And the guy said, yeah, but it costs an additional $11. And my husband was like, oh my God, I can't get there in time. The guy goes, just, you'll owe it to me. So then I went in there a few hours later and said, I think my husband owes you $11 and I paid him. So the East Coast needs Goodman Brothers. You need Goodman Brothers. Yep. That's what you need. There are many good solutions out there, but apparently your neighborhood does not have it. I guess there's a UPS at Staples by me too. They're they're a little bit better, but I don't know. They're they're overwhelmed. They're hurting. <laughs> this is not a good time to have logistics problems. Okay, that's all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter at Hot Buttons Pod and now on Instagram at hotbuttons.pod or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We were trending on Spotify last week, by the way. We are also streaming on Amazon Music. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com. or leave us a voicemail at our call in line. It's at 508-622-5361. Give us a call. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by PostScript Media. Today, we had a guest host, Scott Clavetta. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Mesa Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibby are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week.